This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, we have Mark Hamrick, Washington Bureau Chief at Bankrate.com, who will discuss the explosive jobless claims and skyrocketing unemployment rate. I'll also discuss my family's struggle with coronavirus. It is a time of incredible trial at home and nationwide. And now, The Nexus. Mark Hamrick is Washington Bureau Chief and Senior Economic Analyst for Bankrate.com. He is best known for his analysis of the economy, including the job market, and the Federal Reserve, and writes about those subjects for Bankrate. Mark is a national award-winning business and financial news journalist who came to Bankrate after leading business news for broadcast at the Associated Press in Washington for nearly 20 years. He is also a former president of the National Press Club, of which I am a proud member. Mark Hamrick, welcome to the Nexus. Good to be with you, Art. Thanks for having me. We have had two back-to-back days of shocking jobs news. What's the latest? Sure. Well, let's go in chronological order, and that is, uh, and you know, a lot of this is new to people to the extent that they don't follow this data, haven't had reason to follow the data in the past. But obviously, we know that we're living in extraordinary times, and uh, the economic calamity is every bit as uh, real as is the, the health calamity. So one of the things we're trying to measure is the impact on the job market, the impact on workers and enterprises. One way to look at that is the weekly report from the U.S. Labor Department, which totals the number of individuals who have filed new claims for unemployment benefits, again, in a given week. For the past two weeks, uh, we've gone from more than 3 million claims to more than 6 million claims, meaning that we've had about 10 million Americans successfully filed their request for unemployment benefits uh, through their various state departments of labor. So that represents 10 million Americans who've either been furloughed or have had a more permanent job cut. And then here are the more recent data in terms of the release, not the data itself being recent, uh, is the monthly employment report, which typically uh, for years now had been looking quite robust. Uh, In the month of February, for example, the unemployment rate uh, stood at 3.5%, and we added uh, more than 270,000 jobs on that month. But that was in the distant past now because uh, the reading that we had for the month of March uh, told us that uh, there were more than 700,000 jobs lost during the month and the unemployment rate went up to 4.4%, and that was the biggest single monthly increase since 1975. Here's the problem with the March employment report. It'll be the problem for every report because this is the way the data is gathered, and that's not to demean uh, the good uh, workers uh, working uh, firsthand for the uh, U.S. Department of Census, essentially contracted out by the Department of Labor. These two surveys, they give us the payrolls data, number one, and the unemployment rate, number two, uh, are conducted around the 12th of every month. Every week now feels like a month itself. And so we have to think about the fact that the economy has only further deteriorated uh, substantially since that uh, week around the 12th of March. And so uh, while the unemployment rate rising to 4.4% from uh, 3.5% in a single month is itself shocking, 
The unfortunate thing is it doesn't nearly capture uh, the magnitude of the economic destruction that's occurred since then. And just to give you an idea, Art, of uh, some of the sectors that were most affected there, uh, we had leisure and hospitality uh, losing on the order of 459,000 jobs. Leisure and hospitality is hotels, bars, and restaurants. So we know that those many of those operations have basically been shut. And again, that was earlier in the month. And then retail lost 46,000 jobs. But since then, Art, we've had, for example, furloughs announced uh, for 350,000 retail workers, the likes of Macy's, et cetera. So um, I think that this is an interesting time for us to try to figure out where our gut reactions, our intuition, uh, and our mental processing of the real-time situation aligns or doesn't with the economic data. And the reality is, is that we probably now have an unemployment rate that's closing in on 10%, which was the height of the Great Recession. Um, and we'll see a huge annualized decline in GDP in the current second quarter. The real question ultimately is how well we rebound from all that. Are these figures, as you saw them today, in line with your expectations? Are they better, worse? Did you have any, you, you certainly had some kind of gut feeling going into this. How does it seem to you? Art, I, I think about it in the context of at least the, the things that I can compare it to in my own lifetime and, and during my career. I was working on the day of the 1987 stock market crash. I was working in financial business news uh, for broadcast during the Asian financial crisis, obviously during 9-11, that was between those events, and then the financial crisis and recession uh, from a little more than 10 years ago. And unfortunately, none of those experiences are instructive uh, to give us an idea of how to model for this. And, and that's the challenge for uh, everyone who pays attention to economics, uh, those who have PhDs and those who don't like myself. Um, the problem is, is that there's just not a kind of uh, uh, a template that you can apply to all this. But to the question about whether it was expected, uh, it wasn't expected from the standpoint of what the consensus estimates were. But the reality is that the consensus estimates just don't work right now. Mm. So my, my approach to all this really is that uh, broadly, uh, and it probably applies to the health uh, or medical aspect of this, as well as it does for the economic and personal finance aspects of this is we, we hope for the best and brace for the worst. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and so uh, it's hard for me to be truly surprised by anything right now, because I think, you know, once you, once you're in a state of shock, that doesn't really go away. I read this morning that uh, this is the largest jump in unemployment since January of 1975, which is, 0.9 percent um right it, 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 that's that's accurate right in terms of that's what, what the labor department tells us and, and that will surely be a record that will fall uh, with the succeeding report uh, that attempts to measure what happens here in april so uh yeah uh we're in uncharted waters unprecedented times uh and uh and a lot of economic data is going to be uh is going to be historic in magnitude and already has been. Now, I know you said that, you know, the experiences in your lifetime haven't been instructive, and I know you were not living during the Great Depression, but is, I mean, is it alarmist to say this is in that kind of vein at this point? 
I mean, that is a very good question, Art, and it's a question being asked uh, often and probably in, in, you know, at least 50% of the interviews I do, and I do a lot of interviews. Um, I think that, uh, I think in many ways, the best comparison I can make, and I will address the specific question, the best comparison I can make right now when just trying to assimilate all this is it's a 50 state disaster. And, you know, in the past, talking about Katrina, Superstorm Sandy, tornadoes, flooding, all those are localized and they have their devastating impacts uh, as they do uh, for a concentrated area. And, and those were not, you know, emanating from a health situation. They were, they were events that had to do with uh, Mother Nature, so to speak. But we never had a 50 state disaster before. Uh, and, uh, and and so that's why it's you know devastating for infrastructure and, and the governments that are trying to respond and ultimately the cost of the federal government and the all hands on deck aspect. To the patterns with respect to the depression, there are a couple of things we can uh, talk about. I think that might be relatable there. Number one is uh, you know the uh, maximum unemployment rate again during the Great Recession was ten percent. It was roughly. Uh, 18% during uh, the Great Depression. Question remains whether we'll hit 18% here, and, and we don't know the answer to that. But the textbook definition sort of for depression, first of all, there's no general agreement about that, but what it might find agreement on is really something that's quite succinct and that uh, succinct and that is both the depth of the downturn meaning a decline in economic activity uh, with a minus sign in front of it sequentially but, and ultimately probably year over year as well and then the the um, duration so think of depth and duration so mm -hmm. we're absolutely deep into something and, and it's only going to get deeper the question really ultimately is duration and i have a hard time constructing the scenario where this is something that lasts you know let's say a year or longer in terms of the sort of crater that's currently being created with economic data that describes what's happening in the real world and part of the reason for that is number one we have an all hands on deck federal reserve which answered with its solutions from its toolbox to this, I would say, as early as possible, uh, once it really understood that there was something serious going on with the economy, the financial system was showing signs of seizing up. We were getting those massive declines in stock prices, and the, the wiring of the, of the financial world was, was kind of short-circuiting in, in some ways. And then we had something, I think, and you know, your background in politics is, I think, uh, relevant to this as much as anything, and that is in, in watching and, and measuring politics, is that, um, you know, think about the toxic, my word, political environment that we've had in Washington for quite some time that to some degree mirrors the polarization of, of the American society. And once elected officials in Washington effectively grasp the magnitude of what we've been seeing and experiencing, they passed a $2 trillion relief measure that was meant to keep businesses and workers solvent, at least for a period of time. You know, to me, it's 
amazing that they were able to put their political differences largely aside, which, by the way, I would add, as they damn well should have, <laughs> uh, because that's why they were sent to Washington in the first place. But it's in the context of our recent experience that, unfortunately, that seems surprising. Right. So to the extent that the system, quote unquote, seems to have worked here um, is a pleasant surprise. And I, and I do think that that can help to mitigate at least the near term impact, you know, but if I haven't used the expression already, I'll, I'll, use, I'll use it again either way. And that is, you know, policymakers, fiscal authorities, as Congress and the president, monetary policy authorities, the Federal Reserve in our country, they are playing um, a never-ending game of whack-a-mole right now. Mm -hmm. And as we speak, today's the first day uh, where the payroll protection program is in force, where uh, the Small Business Administration is uh, doling out funds through banks and credit unions meant to keep businesses operating and, and the most important thing, keep workers on the payroll. There are some problems with that. Uh, there are going to be problems getting the unemployment assistance out there that is intended to raise unemployment assistance in every state by $600 a week and, and to have those uh, payments over a more prolonged period of time also applying newly to furloughed and gig economy workers. The whack-a-mole game is going to continue because with each problem that is at least somewhat solved and resolved, another problem is going to pop up. Uh, and uh, this is the nature of sort of crisis management. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised. In fact, I would expect that probably there's probably two more rounds of legislation to follow from Congress. The next one or one of the next ones that's being discussed, at least uh, in terms of a would-be proposal, is infrastructure spending, uh, perhaps to the tune of $2 trillion. We know, Art, that in our country, we have a big problem with the disrepair of our roads, bridges, highways, airports, electrical grid water systems. Think about Flint, Michigan. Think about the highways we go over and are almost embarrassed to be driving on because they have so many potholes, and that's not only in the wintertime around Washington, D.C. Uh, <laughs> You can repair uh, or build those systems now with record low interest rates. But there's the added benefit, of course, you know, if you think about two objectives, one is to do the work because it's needed, but secondly is to put people back to work. If now isn't the time to do that, I don't know when is. Uh, and then to go on along the lines of the whack-a-mole analogy, um, I think probably will be more economic stimulus either because some of the earlier uh, efforts to provide relief will have expired or been insufficient, or there will have been essentially um, aspects of the intention that were not matched in the execution of the legislation. And, uh, you know, how that appears, I know, you know, just this morning, I didn't have time to wade into it yet, but I know House Speaker Pelosi was dealing with some of her ideas for that. And, and I'm sure there'll be more discussion about that in the days and weeks to come. Mm hmm. I, I think about this, though, I think a lot of people are rather taken aback that within a few weeks time, just a few weeks, a few, many, many, many businesses folded, shut down, just what does that say? Does that say that our economy is on such fragile ground all the time that it can't withstand a few weeks of, I mean, granted, this is a problem, but I, I 
am seeing massive companies that are in uh, serious trouble. And it's not like this has been going on in the United States for months. What does that say? Well, there's a couple ways to look at that art. And, and the company question is the one you asked, but I want to go to another part of it first and then come back around to that if my memory uh, remains intact here in the short term. <laughs> and that is that uh, our bank rate surveys, uh, which we do a lot of surveys, I'd really invite people to look at the site because we're really set up to do, um, we're, we're really the major collector for private enterprise of data that, uh, not only affects everyday lives, so we're talking about mortgage rates, uh, interest rates across the spectrum, savings rates, but relative to what you just asked, we do surveys attempting to get what's happening with individuals' personal finances on an ongoing basis as well. Uh, and I'm very much involved with that. That's sort of the senior economic analyst part of my job where we're creating ideas for surveys and then executing them and, and coming back with results. One of the ones that's had the most traction over the years because it's in some ways surprising or stunning is that the majority of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck coming into this experience, okay? Mm -hmm. So only about 40% of Americans say that they can pay an emergency expense of $1,000 or more from savings. So that's before the crisis. Mm. Uh, the other part is uh, another uh, survey that's sort of uh, top of mind and gets a lot of traction is that, uh, and this is sort of the best practices piece where we encourage people to do their best to, to avoid these circumstances is the number one financial regret is the failure to save for emergencies and for retirement. So if in normal times, your number one regret is failure to save for emergencies, what does this say about when you're in the emergency, right? And we talked just a moment ago about the failure uh, to be, or the inability or incapability or unwillingness to save uh, to be prepared for that emergency expense. So to the question about business, uh, the reality is that there are a variety of um, circumstances that exist for businesses that are operating at different levels of scale. And so there's a legitimate question, which will continue to be hashed out in the days and weeks ahead, um, about the notion of stock buybacks where companies have capital and uh, deploy that capital to buy back their stock, obviously being publicly traded in that instance to support the price of the stock and to some degree, if not a large degree, reward their shareholders. And we know that in a, in a society that has a high degree of income inequality, the um, notion of owning stock is one that's not nearly universal. Um, probably about half the population has exposure to the stock market by virtue of retirement savings, typically a 401k, uh, much of which is incentivized by an employer to match uh, or at least provide, you know, some minimum level of retirement funding with a tax benefit. So that's large scale companies. And, and, and that, by the way, ends up being a criticism of uh, the tax act that President uh, Trump supported and, and got passed by Congress, meaning that a lot of the relief that uh, corporations got in the sense of saving on their taxes, uh, the majority of that benefit went to stock buybacks and not to worker pay. That probably was ultimately, if you think there's a problem with that, meaning those who are listening right now, uh, that probably ends up being uh, a flaw of the legislation. And even President Trump himself, who's not a master of self-analysis or criticism, has indicated in recent days that he thinks that that was a problem. Mm. Um, 
for smaller businesses and you know in this latest jobs report as we mentioned leisure and hospitality had the bulk of the job losses think about you know the businesses that we all go to in our neighborhoods or communities that ultimately i think you know we have a great appreciation for and in my case i'd say love i think of a, a small italian restaurant that's not too far away with a sole proprietor from italy himself and you know most restaurants have about a 50-50 chance of surviving under the best of circumstances. The reason for that is it's a low margin business, meaning they don't generate huge profits or cash, uh, particularly when they're operating at a small scale. Uh, that's under the best of times. And that's not a fault of the proprietors. It's just the nature of the business. So, you know, no business is prepared for zero revenue over a prolonged period of time. They might be prepared for a storm, but not the tsunami they've experienced. So I'm sure businesses will look at this differently in the future, but no one really could have prepared for this. Sure, sure. And I think a lot of people also wonder, if we didn't have COVID-19, would the job market still be humming along or were we on the cusp of a slowdown anyway? Yeah, good question. We were already in a slowdown. We had seen uh, annual and monthly job gains uh, decline probably for the last three years. Uh, we saw some reacceleration, but um, you know, before we came into this, we were talking about a record expansion 11 years along. But, you know, I've been talking and everybody else in this business has been as well that, you know, bull markets don't last forever and economic expansions don't last forever. And the, the punchline for that is, is that economic expansions don't die of old age. Uh, the actual punchline is that central banks kill them uh, <laughs> they, 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 because of their management of interest rates. But, um, but the reality is, is that the central bank, I don't think, can be blamed for this one because it was caused by the downturn was caused by a pandemic. So, you know, I do think for those who are either young and are experiencing something uh, in terms of a downturn for the first time or they're newly in the workforce and haven't seen a contraction, uh, or for those of us who've been through all kinds of market and business cycles, uh, the reminder is that um, these cycles do exist. Uh, and that uh, we need not, we should not take the good times for granted, whether it has to do with a stock market that's setting new records as it was through early February, or with an economic expansion that was essentially, uh, you know, continuing beyond all reasonable expectations. And that's the need to prepare for winter. And that gets to the notion of being diligent with our personal finances. And I know many people have problems not making the wages that they need or desire. That's a different question. I'm not being dismissive of that. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, for others who might have spent more freely than they would have otherwise, uh, this is a reminder that, you know, we do need to pay down debt. We do need to save for emergencies. We will need to stick to our game plan for saving for retirement. And the other part already is that, you know, we will emerge from this and, uh, and we'll, we'll have been shaken by it to some degree and we'll have been educated about how pandemics can surprise us and, and, and claim an amazing toll in our society. 
But there will be a day when the economy is growing again, and I hope it's sooner than later, uh, and uh, and that the markets advance uh, will return. We, by the way, just did a so-called Markets Maven survey, a bank rate uh, that was published just a few days ago. And uh, there was an expectation among the many professional investors who participated in that that we would see a double-digit increase in the stock market's major averages, or the S&P 500 specifically, over the next 12 months. Interestingly enough, they did not expect uh, that we would get back to the record levels as a group uh, that we had seen earlier. But you know, we've seen a big downturn in the stock market. We've seen a little bit of a bottoming process. That doesn't mean that we won't test those lows again, but all of that is going to be something we'll only know after the fact. Absolutely. Uh, just a couple more things. The Back to the, the numbers from yesterday and today. Uh, often we hear Bureau of Labor Statistics detractors say that the unemployment rate doesn't capture the so-called underemployed. Is that happening now with today's figures? Well, there'll be some statistic, statistical anomalies uh, in the months to come, uh, and there always are. But uh, I actually think that the unemployment data that we get from the federal uh, government is is pretty good. Um, yeah. there, there are people that, well, first of all, they're, they're conspiracy theorists and, and I don't have anything really useful to say to them because, <laughs> you know, there may be Martians uh, lurking in back of them that will attack us, of course. Uh, <laughs> I'm saying that jokingly, but, um, but um, I, so there's the statistics and then there's what's happening, you know, in in the world and the statistics attempt to capture what's happening. But, you know, they're numbers, they're not people and they're and they, and they can't much the same as a pixel doesn't portray what's happening in our in our true existence. The data can't capture that. But um, I, th I think that, for example, the jobless claims data that we've been getting and we discussed 10 million in two weeks, new claims for unemployment benefits. That's a pretty good measure of what's happening. Now, it's true. Not everybody's eligible for that. Not everybody was able to get their claim through the system. We know the system's kind of broke down. There's a number that I think we'll continue to watch also. And by the way, we didn't talk about this uh, earlier. Just in that earlier snapshot of the March employment data, the number of unemployed in the country was already measured to be more than 7 million, Okay. So uh, that had risen just in that one month by 1.4 million. So that's not insignificant, and that'll certainly go higher. Another number that we'll watch, uh, and this is an important one, uh, is an, an, an underemployment metric uh, in the monthly data, uh, which uh, the, the official sort of description of it is the number of persons employed part-time for economic reasons. What that really means is the number of people who are working part-time who'd like to have full-time work, that stood at 5.8 million. We had seen that as high as 10 million during the downturn of a decade ago. Uh, and that rose in the, in the single month by 1.5 million. I think we'll continue to watch that closely and see that there'll be you know, no doubt, even uh, aside from those who are truly unemployed, uh, there'll continue to be uh, a larger number who are working part-time and would like to have full-time work or underemployed. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's also um, important to, to be aware of. Um, is there a chance that a lot of these 
jobs will be rehired in a few months. I think, you know, when you, when you think about like classic recessions, those jobs are gone and they're not coming back, almost like quoting a Bruce Springsteen song. I mean, I would imagine some of these jobs will come back, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's one of the things associated with the furloughs uh, that we're seeing, you know, 350,000 furloughs in retailing, uh, and those are just the major chains. Uh, those jo- many of those jobs will come back, uh, even though it may be a challenge for some of the employers to, to get them to come back, meaning they may have already done something else. But when you're talking about the levels of unemployment we're talking about, there's going to be a big pool of labor out there. That really gets to the discussion about the depression earlier, depth and duration. Um, I think that there's a reasonable chance that we'll see growth return at a reasonable uh, rate later in the year. And with that, uh, people are able to literally be employed again when we're all able to essentially venture out of our homes and engage in the same kind of consumer and social activity that we would have engaged in before. There are going to be a lot of things changed that we can't really even get our arms around right now, though, Art. You know, are we going to be reticent about going to live events that work crowds are, uh, even if there is a, uh, you know, immunization available or uh, effective treatment? Um, will businesses that uh, are about at operating at higher costs be able to welcome back the same level of, of customer enthusiasm they had in the past if people are being cautious about the economy. There are a lot of virtuous things that happen when the cycle is, is good and there can be some damaging things that occur when the cycle is negative, much the same as consumer confidence, you know, either being strong or, or weak. So I think people have reason to be hopeful that Many of these jobs will come back. You know, many employers are making a pledge to not uh, have any furloughs, and and God bless them. Uh, but you know, the, the wherewithal of enterprises and the strength of the economy will de- determine that as we forge ahead. Absolutely. Well. Mark Hamrick is the Washington Bureau Chief and Senior Economic Analyst at Bankrate.com. Check out his stories there and his appearances on radio and television. Mark, thank you today for joining me in the Nexus. Art, uh, thanks so much. It's always a pleasure and appreciate your good work and the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. It started with a cough on March 19th. That's when my father noticed a mild but persistent cough that a day or two later caused him great difficulty sleeping. He wasn't coughing when he sat up, but lying down became almost impossible. I detected the cough when I spoke to him by telephone on March 25th, and I asked him about it. Oh, just a drip. I get them this time of year, he said. I asked him if he had a fever or body aches. He said no. He had checked himself with a thermometer and his temperature was normal. I was concerned, but not terribly so. The seasons are changing and all. Then again, he is going to be 81 in June. The next morning, Dad called me and said he had finally received the postcard I had sent from Ghana one month earlier. He was so happy with the card, but was having difficulty speaking to me. His cough was way worse. I said at first, you need medicine. Then as we spoke more, I said, you have to go to a doctor. I consulted with my sister and she decided to order him an ambulance. Dad was whisked away on the morning of March 26th to Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital in Somerset, New Jersey. 
a top-notch teaching facility. I thought he had a heavy cold that was getting worse. What I didn't realize is that he was quickly presumed to have coronavirus. A battery of doctors examined him and he was placed in a special, almost sensory-deprived ward. Medical personnel came in and out of his room virtually in hazmat gear. My dad referred to it as the science fiction movie I'm in. Over the weekend of March 28th and 29th, my father got worse. He was placed on oxygen to help with breathing and an IV for nutrients. I tried speaking to him on the phone and he talked in fragments, not sentences, and every 15 seconds or so was punctuated by heavy coughing. It was scary stuff. Did he have bronchitis? Did he have pneumonia? These thoughts raced through my mind. Since the hospital had a strict no visitors policy, there was no way I can go up and visit if I wanted to. And since my dad left his phone charger at home when he went to the hospital, my sister had to buy a new charger a few days later and bring it to him at Robert Wood Johnson. She tried to leave the charger at the gate for a nurse to pick it up, but that was not allowed. So my sister had to walk through security and submit to a battery of on-the-spot medical tests. A nurse took her temperature, checked her breathing, and examined her glands, along with interviewing my sister about her medical history. The lobby was like out of a post-apocalyptic movie with full-on masks, hazmat gear, and sheeting placed over furniture. Fortunately, my sister was deemed worthy through all of that to leave a cell phone charger for my dad, which was disinfected and brought to him. On Monday, the head of infectious diseases at Robert Wood Johnson told me my father probably has coronavirus. That hit me like lightning. Yes, I knew he was being quarantined as if he had the virus, but I thought that was just a coincidence. After all, dad just had a cough and no fever, chills, or body aches. How can you have COVID-19 with only one symptom? The doctor explained that dad was experiencing the progression that coronavirus patients had. As the week went on, he started getting better. Evidently, one of the drugs he is being given is the anti-malaria drug hydroxychloroquine, which is allegedly working in some patients in China. Can anything we are hearing from China be believed, however? I know I'm skeptical. It is now Friday, April 3rd, and Dad has been in the hospital for eight days. We still don't know what he has, but he is listed as a presumed coronavirus patient. That's because in eight days, he still hasn't gotten his test results back. When you hear celebrities and politicians contract coronavirus, it seems like they go from symptoms to test to results in a handful of days. Do these folks have a special dispensation which allows them to leap to the front of the line? One would like to think not, but we do operate in a for-profit medical society. In any case, the doctors and nurses say my dad is on the road to recovery, and that is great. He is off the IV and oxygen, and his cough is virtually gone. Yet, I'm still worried. He's almost 81, and after all, and at that age, anything can happen. I'm also worried because there's such a lack of information about coronavirus. Clearly, there are mild, medium, and severe cases. But what are the attributes of each of those? Is it actually airborne or just transmitted through coughing near someone? Why do certain people need ventilators? Can the virus somehow stage a sneak attack against dad, even if he is clearly recovering? You hear about the virus just lingering. How does one kick it out of their body? These are the kind of lessons I wish I could learn from the White House briefings or from any briefing. Instead, we get a lot of self-congratulatory nonsense about what a great job we're doing 
yet no one really knows what COVID-19 is about and what its impact is on a person. Will dad be truly recovered or like malaria, could it recur sometime? My heart goes out to the heroic doctors and nurses who are working round the clock to make him better, along with hundreds of thousands of Americans, and to the truck drivers and logistics personnel who keep the supply chain moving. Thank God we have hardworking people who have answered the call to keep America afloat while we bayonet our way through this thicket. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and is produced by Colin Martin. If you like this podcast, please share it far and wide. Thank you for listening. Stay indoors. Check up on your family and friends and be well.